The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Just in time for the holidays, we have the end of the world as envisioned by the Norse. So today we will be dealing with Ragnarok. And to start with, we will be going to the event that preceded it, and you might say precipitated it, and that is the death of Odin's son, Baldr. Uh, we will do the same thing we did last time with the creation of the world in the Norse myths. We'll read from the prose Edda first, which will be more expansive, more detailed, and talk about it. And then we'll take a little break and we will read from, uh, we'll read the same story as told in the uh, Voluspa in the Poetic Edda and see how uh, each of those uh, main texts deals with basically the same story. So we'll start with the Prose Edda, and as I've mentioned before, the version that I'm reading from is published by Everyman, and it is just called Edda, translated by Anthony Fox. And the, uh, the Prose Edda, the uh, younger Edda, was compiled or written by Snorri Sturluson around the year 1220. So we'll jump right in to the story of Odin's son, the death of Baldr. It says, at the beginning of this story, it is told that Baldr the Good, he's always referred to as Baldr the Good, uh, he dreamed great dreams boding peril to his life. And when he told the Aesir, the other gods, the dreams, they took counsel together and it was decided to request immunity for Baldr from all kinds of danger. And Frigg received solemn promises so that Baldr should not be harmed by fire and water, iron and all kind of metal, stones, the earth, trees, diseases, the animals, the birds, poison, and snakes. And when this was done and confirmed, then it became an entertainment for Baldr and the Aesir that he should stand up at assemblies, and that all the others should either shoot at him, or strike at him, or throw stones at him. But whatever they did, he was unharmed, and they all thought this a great glory." Now just from that, there is so much right there. Why should they think it is a great glory, that they can just uh, beat the shit out of this guy, basically, and he is never harmed? Um, it seems to be the utopian wish, even the gods have this utopian wish, that they can have the thrill, maybe even the um, the release of violence uh, without its consequences. And there's also 
all wrapped up in this story especially. Uh, the old wish perhaps that someone can be freed from death and from harm entirely. And the very old folk or very, you might say, more simplistic folk story where you go around and you ask everyone to not do this or not do that and you get the, and everybody promises. Here, this promises, these promises and this going around is weighted with all the doom of Norse mythology. And uh, even here, it will not work. You can't go around and uh, save yourself just by asking permission of all of the animals, all the plants, and the landscape in the entire world. It sort of reminds me, just as I was reading it, of the Epic of Gilgamesh and what happens when Gilgamesh realizes that his best friend has died and that he too will die. Uh, there is just the desperate wish that death should not be, but it always is. And it seems that it's significant somehow that this desire to be able to not be harmed by violence, to not be harmed by anything in the natural world, etc. It's interesting that that impulse, the desire to do that, uh, is the thing that leads to the greatest act of natural and uh, and godly violence, the last war and the end of the world itself. Uh, we should not go looking for ultimate safety, you might say. Uh, because, of course, uh, they're having a good time. It's a great entertainment to do this to Balder. But when uh, Loki saw this, of course, he was not pleased that Balder was unharmed. He went to Fensalir to Frigg, and he changed his appearance to that of a woman. Then Frigg asked this woman if she knew what the Aesir were doing at the assembly. She said that everyone was shooting at Balder, and moreover that he was unharmed. And then said Frigg, Weapons and wood will not hurt Balder. I have received oaths from them all. Then the old woman said, Have all things sworn oaths not to harm Balder? And then Frigg replied, Well, there grows a shoot of a tree to the west of Valhall. It is called mistletoe. It seemed young to me to demand the oath from. And straightway the old woman disappeared, and Loki took mistletoe and plucked it and went to the assembly. Hode, the brother of, uh, of Balder, another son of Odin's, his name is Hode, Hode was standing at the edge of the circle of people because he was blind. And then Loki said to him, Why are you not shooting at Balder? He replied, Because I cannot see where Balder is, and secondly, because I have no weapon. And then said Loki, Follow other people's example and do Balder the honor like the other people. I will direct you where he is standing. Shoot at him this stick the stick uh, wrapped with mistletoe. Hode took the mistletoe and shot at Balder at Loki's direction. The missile flew through him and he fell dead to the ground. And this was the unluckiest deed ever done among gods and men. When Balder had fallen, then all the Aesir's tongues failed them, as did their hands for lifting him up. And they all looked at each other and were all of one mind toward the one who had done the deed. 
but no one could take vengeance. It was a place of such sanctuary. So when the Aesir tried to speak then, what happened first was that weeping came out, so that none could tell another in none could tell another in word of his grief. And that reminds me too of Gilgamesh when they uh, when there's just the idea of maybe flooding the whole world and getting rid of these annoying people. But when they do unleash the flood, uh, it even uh, frightens the gods. The idea of one of the goddesses cowering uh, like a dog against one of the walls, trying to avoid being drowned herself. Here, uh, even the gods weep, and they weep so much that they, they cannot speak through their grief. But it was Odin who took this injury the hardest, in that he had the best idea what great deprivation and loss the death of Balder would cause the Aesir. And when the gods came to themselves, then Frigg spoke and asked who there was among the Aesir who wished to earn all her love and favor, and was willing to ride the road to hell and try, if he could, find Balder and offer Hell a ransom if she would let Balder go back to Asgard. So now, uh, you don't want to, um, you want to believe that it's possible to avoid death, and once death has happened, you want to believe that you can uh, reverse it. You want to bring him back. Uh, this is a very old story indeed. Uh, it's uh, not too far from the episode I did on Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, actually, in the sense of a, of a dead son that you want to bring back, and all of the uh, consequences that come from that decision. Uh, Hermod the Bold, another of Odin's sons, Odin gets around, uh, Hermod the Bold, Odin's boy, is the name of the one who undertook this journey to hell. Then Odin's horse Sleipnir was fetched and led forward, and Hermod mounted his horse and galloped away. Soon the Aesir took Baldur's body and carried it to the sea. Hringhorni was the name of Baldur's ship. It was the biggest of all ships. And this the Aesir planned to launch and perform on it Baldur's funeral. But the ship refused to move. So they, because it's so large, so they went to giant land for a giantess called Hirokin. And when she arrived, riding a wolf, using vipers as reins, which is a wonderful detail, uh, she dismounted from her steed, and Odin summoned four berserks to look after the mount. Uh, and they were unable to hold it without knocking it down. Then Hirokin went to the prow of the boat, and pushed it out with the first touch, so that flame flew from the rollers and all the lands quaked. You almost imagine that being perhaps a comic touch that all she has to do is just bop it real quick, almost with the, just the tip of her finger, and she's able to get it to move. Um, then Thor became angry, because he does not like uh, giants, and he grasped his hammer and was about to smash her head until all the gods begged grace for her. Then Baldur's body was carried out onto the ship, and when his wife Nana, Nep's daughter, saw this, she collapsed with grief and died. She was carried onto the pyre, and it was set fire too. 
And then Thor stood by and consecrated the pyre with Mjolnir. But a certain dwarf ran in front of his feet, his name was Lit, and Thor kicked at him with his foot and thrust him into the fire, and he was burned. And this whole description of the, of the funeral seems to have stray details that could belong in other stories, but are really collected wonderfully here, again, maybe for comic touch, uh, or just to uh, layer in a lot of backstory just in this, uh, in this funeral scene. And you'll notice that when I get to the part from the Poetic Edda and from a poem about the death of Balder, you'll notice that it is Odin, uh, not Hermod, who goes down to hell. And I believe he doesn't do that until uh, right before or right after the funeral. I can't remember, but we'll find out in just a moment. Um, it says, the burning, the burning of the ship, the burning of uh, Balder and his wife. Uh, this burning was attended by beings of many different kinds, and here they are, a good excuse for a catalog of beings of many different kinds. Firstly, to tell of Odin, that with him went Frigg, and Valkyries, and his ravens, while Freyr drove in a chariot with a boar called Gulenbursti, or Slidrugtani. But Heimdall rode a horse called Gultop, and Freya rode her cats. There came also a great company of frost giants and mountain giants. And Odin laid on the pyre a gold arm ring called Dropnir. It afterwards had the property that every ninth night there dripped from it eight gold rings of the same weight. Baldur's horse was led on to the pyre also with all its harness. But there is this to tell of Hermod, that he rode for nine nights through the valleys, dark and deep, so that he saw nothing until he came to the river Gil and rode on to Gil Bridge. You see how uh, deftly, I think that is the right word here, it goes from the funeral to the trip down to hell. It's a wonderful transition. Um, and you can imagine this being told out loud by people who are wondering what's going to happen at the funeral and suddenly goes somewhere else. Uh, so he rides over the Gule Bridge. Uh, that bridge is covered with glowing gold. There is a maiden guarding the bridge called Mudgud. She asked him his name and his lineage and said that the other day there had ridden over the bridge five battalions of dead men. But, she says, the bridge resounds no less under you, and you do not have the color of dead men. Why are you riding here on the road to hell? In other words, I can tell that you're alive. Uh, your living weight has the weight of five battalions of dead men. What are you doing here? Long, long tradition of, of people, uh, of stories of the underworld, of of the dead realizing that the living is among them. It goes all the way up to Dante down in the Inferno or Dante in uh, climbing the Mount of Purgatory and the dead saying, look how uh, the sun makes a shadow on him. He must still be alive. Wonderful stories from all around the world of just these little, just these little realizations of the dead, that the living is, the living are among them. Um, 
Why are you riding here on the road to hell? You are not dead. And he replies, I am to ride to hell to seek Balder. But have you seen anything of Balder on the road to hell? And she said that Balder had ridden there over a gill bridge. But downwards and northwards lies the road to hell. So then Hermod rode on until he came to hell's gates. And then he dismounted from the horse and tightened its girth, mounted it and spurred it on. The horse jumped so hard and over the gate that it came nowhere near. Then Hermod rode up to the hall and dismounted from his horse, went into the hall, and saw sitting there in the seat of honor his brother Balder. And Hermod stayed there the night. In the morning Hermod begged from hell that Balder might ride home with him, and said what great weeping there was among the Aesir. But hell said, hell is not the, just the name of the place, but the name of the person presiding over it, H-E-L, but Hell said that it must be tested whether Balder was as beloved as people said, and this was the test. If all things in the world, alive and dead, weep for him, then he shall go back to the Aesir, but otherwise he will be kept in Hell if any objects or any people refuse to weep. And again, a very... Um, uh, a very standard sort of folkloric test that would appear perhaps in a more simple story because you know it's not going to work uh, from the outset. And the game and the fun and the amusement of the story is usually in figuring out how it will not work and how it will be upended. And here again, it is used to great effect for something that is immensely more serious. So go back and see if everything in the entire world uh, will weep for Balder. Uh, then Hermod got up, and Balder went with him out of the hall, and he took the ring Dropnir and sent it to Odin as a keepsake. And Nanna sent Frigg a linen robe and other gifts too, and to Fulla a finger ring. And then Hermod rode back on his way and came to Asgard and told all the things that he had seen and heard. And wait till you hear how different the story is of when Odin goes down to hell. It's much different. Um, after this, the Aesir sent all over the world messengers to request that Balder be wept out of hell. It's a great phrase. Weep him out of hell, cry him out of hell. And all did this, the people and animals and the earth, and the stones and the trees and every metal, just as you will have seen that these things weep when they come out of frost and into heat. So another <laughs> great uh, etymological explanation for why things appear, natural things appear to weep. Um, when the envoys were traveling back, having well fulfilled their errand, now they find in a certain cave a giantess sitting there. She said that her name was Thanks, and they bade her weep Balder out of hell, and Thanks said this, Thanks will weep dry tears for Balder's burial. No good got I from the old one's son, either dead or alive. Let hell hold what she has. And it says, It was presumed that this was Loki in disguise again, 
who has done most evil against the Aesir. And so what happens to Loki? John Lindau, in his book, uh, Norse Mythology, A Guide to the Gods, Heroes, Rituals, and Beliefs, he lets us know what happens to Loki. He summarizes it very nicely. Uh, Loki, after he realizes that people are looking for him, Loki runs off to a mountain and sequesters himself in a house with four doors, out of which he peers to watch for the Aesir's attack. Frequently changing himself into a salmon, he anticipates the strategy of the Aesir, and he makes a net, but he burns it and leaps into the river as they approach. Seeing the pattern of the ashes, Kvasir understands the potential that it represents, and the Aesir pursue Loki with a net. Twice he evades them, but on the third, always the third in these stories, on the third try, he attempts a leap over the net, and Thor grabs him by the tail, which is why salmon to this day are thin by the tail. The Aesir take Loki to a cave, where they bind him to a rock. They change one of his sons into a wolf, and they have it tear his other son to pieces. They suspend a poisonous snake over him, dripping venom. His wife Sigyn is made to catch the venom in a pot. But when she goes to empty it when it's full, the venom falls onto Loki's face, and his writhings cause earthquakes. So you see what happens to Loki is uh, the revenge is not just taken on him, since his crime was not just against Odin, uh, or not just against uh, Baldur, but against Baldur's family, against all the gods. Revenge is taken on Loki, on Loki's sons, on his wife, on his entire family. And as John Lindau says uh, in the next page, uh, for both the author of the Voluspa and for Snorri Sturluson, uh, Baldur's death was a disaster that led uh, almost inexorably, to Ragnarok. He says, I understand the story as the mythic reflection of a basic social problem in uh, Norse, Icelandic, and such society. Namely, the fact that a society that used blood feud to resolve disputes, as medieval and presumably saga Iceland did, uh, such a society could not deal with a killing within a family because what, uh, what ends up happening is that revenge is taken on Hode as well, uh, the brother who actually did the killing and not just on Loki. And then it becomes a question, well, how do you avenge Hode? And, uh, and, and on and on and on, because one of his brothers kills him. There's a lot of blood, brother, blood feud stuff going on. But that leads to... Uh, Ragnarok. And if we skip ahead a few pages in this version of the Edda, we can get there. And keep in mind, too, that uh, what Snorri Sturluson does here is he quotes uh, bits of the Voluspa's account of the end of the world as well. And we will hear those bits told again when we just read from the Voluspa a little bit later on. So this is the account of Ragnarok. Uh, there are many important things to be told about Ragnarok. First of all is that a winter will come called Thimble Winter, mighty or mysterious winter. 
Then snow will drift from all directions. There will then be great frosts and keen winds. The sun will do no good. Uh, the end of the world in this uh, conception uh, does not involve heat, does not involve hell and fire. Uh, at first, at least, it involves what they know, the terror that these people knew, which was snow and cold. Uh, there will be three of these winters together, and no summer in between. But before that, there will come three other winters, during which there will be great battles throughout the world. Then brothers will kill each other out of greed, and no one will show mercy to father or son in killing, or in breaking the taboos of kinship. Thus it says in the Voluspa, brothers will fight and kill each other, cousins will break the bonds of their relationship. It will be harsh for heroes, much depravity, age of axes, age of swords, shields, cloven, age of winds, age of wolves, until the world is ruined. And this is what happens when you try to avoid death, when you try to have, you might say, violence without the consequences, um, and all the rest of it. Uh, then something will happen that will be thought a most significant event. The wolf, the Fenris wolf, will swallow the sun, and people will think this a great disaster. And then the other wolf will catch the moon, and he also will cause much mischief. And the stars will disappear from the sky. And then there will take place another event. The whole earth and mountains will shake so much that trees will become uprooted from the earth and the mountains will fall. And all fetters and bonds will snap and break. Then Fenris Wolf will get free. And then the ocean will surge up onto the lands because the Midgard Serpent will fly into a giant rage and make its way ashore. And then it will also happen that Naglfar will be loosed from its moorings, and the ship of that name will be loosed from its moorings. It is made of dead people's nails. There's an old, um, uh, what do you say, an old superstition that you uh, should not be biting or clipping your nails because they will all end up being part of this ship. Uh, it is made of dead people's nails, and it is worth taking care lest anyone die with untrimmed nails, since such a person contributes much to the material uh, of the ship Nagalfar, which the gods and men wish would take a long time to finish. This is another reason to read the original story here. I'm sure that there are wonderful retellings of this uh, that, that tell the story very well and to our modern ears might even tell it better. But I think hearing the strangeness of the original and understanding that the strangeness of it, the, the version of it that includes an aside about uh, pairing the fingernails of dead people, uh, understanding that those little bits, as much as the major parts of the story of the plot, those are the reasons that the story has lasted in the first place and gotten to a point in 2022 where we need to retell it. Um, this is another reason to just look at the original. Um, and so in this flood, the ship Nagalfar will be carried along. There is a giant called Hrim who will captain that ship, but the Fenris wolf will go with mouth agape and its upper jaw will be against the sky and as a lower one against the earth. And it would gape wider 
if there was only room. If there was only room. Uh, flames will burn from its eyes and nostrils. The Midgard serpent will spit so much poison that it will bespatter all the sky and sea, and it will be very terrible, and it will be on one side of the wolf. Amid this turmoil, the sky will open, and from it will ride the sons of Muspel. Sirt will ride in front, and both before and behind him there will be burning fire. His sword will be very fine, and light will shine from it more brightly than from the sun. And when they ride over Bifrost, it will break, as was said above. And Muspel's lads will advance to the field called Vigrid. Then there will also arrive there Fenris Wolf and the Midgard Serpent. And by then Loki will also have arrived there, gotten free from his chains, and Hrim and with him and all the Frost Giants. But with Loki will also be all of Hell's people, by the way all of Hell's people. But Muspel's sons will have their own battle array, and it will be very bright. The field of Vigrid is a hundred leagues in each direction. It seems significant, too, that Loki will be with all of the dead. There is the idea that Loki, being the trickster, being the one who comes in and blows everything up, even if all he's doing sometimes is being goofy and playing practical jokes, um, there is a sense that he is as inevitable as death, as the things that he represents are inevitable as death, and that uh, certainty or safety of the kind that we might want in an organized society simply are not possible, either because of the sometimes silly, sometimes seriousness of what Loki does, or just because things like death and taxes are also inevitable as well. And when these events take place, Heimdall will stand up, and he will blow mightily on the Galarhorn, and he will awaken all the gods, and they will hold a parliament together. And then Odin will ride to Mimir as well, and he will consult Mimir on his own and his on his people's behalf. And then the ash tree Yggdrasil will shake, and nothing will then be unafraid in heaven or on earth. The Aesir will put on their war gear, and so will all the Einherar, and they will advance onto the field. Odin will ride in front with golden helmet and fine coat of mail, and his spear called Gungir. He will make for the Fenris wolf, and Thor will advance at his side, and be unable to aid him because he will have his hands full fighting the Midgard serpent, and in earlier stories he is also trying to fight or just go fishing for the Midgard Serpent. Uh, Freyr will fight Surt, and there will be a harsh conflict before Freyr falls. The cause of his death will be that he will go without the good sword that he gave to Skirnir. Then they will also have got free of the dog Garm, which is bound in front of Gnipilheller. This is the most evil creature. He will have a battle with Tyr, and they will each be the death of the other. Thor will be victorious over the Midgard Serpent and will step away from it nine paces. And then he will fall to the ground dead from the poison which the serpent will spit at him. The wolf will swallow Odin. That will be the cause of his death. 
and immediately after, Vidar will come forward and step with one foot on the lower jaw of the wolf. And Vidar, I believe, is another of Odin's sons, so he is at least avenging his father. On this foot, he will have a shoe for which the material has been being collected throughout all time. It is the waist pieces that people cut from their shoes at the toe and the heel. Who knew that the end of the world had so much to do with toenails and uh, parts uh, of the bottom of your shoes? Uh, therefore, anyone that is concerned to give assistance to the Aesir must throw these pieces of their these disused pieces of their shoes away. I love this. Uh, with one hand, he will grasp the wolf's upper jaw and tear apart its mouth, and this will cause the wolf's death. Loki will have a battle with Heimdall, and they will all cause each other's death. And after that, Surt will fling fire over the earth and burn the whole world. Uh, just in that paragraph um, is just an encyclopedia of Norse myth. You could fill a book with a sentence and then an explanation. A sentence, where to find that story? A sentence, where to find that story? It's wonderful how they're able to do this. And here Snorri just says, uh, screw it, I'm going to just quote a bunch from the Voluspa. I'm not going to try and retell this because this is good poetry. It says, uh, thus it is related in the Voluspa. Loud blows Heimdall, his horn is aloft. Odin speaks with Mim's head. The ash Yggdrasil shakes as it stands. The ancient tree groans, and the giant gets free. What is it with the Aesir? What is it with the elves? All giant land resounds. Aesir are in council. Dwarfs groan before rock doorways. Frequenters of rock walls. Know you yet or what? Hrim drives from the east, holding his shield before him. Eormungand writhes in a giant rage. The serpent churns the waves. The eagle screech with joy. Darkly pale, it tears corpses. Nagalfar is loosed. A bark sails from the east. Across the sea will come Muspel's troops with Loki at the helm. All that monstrous brood are there with the wolf. And in company with them is Byleist's brother. Surt travels from the south with the stick destroyer, which is fire. It's the kenning for fire, the stick destroyer. Uh, shines from his sword the son of the gods of the slain. Rock cliffs crash and troll wives are aboard. Watch out for the troll wives, apparently. Uh, troll wives are aboard. Heroes tread the road of hell and heaven splits. Then Helene's second sorrow comes to pass as Odin goes to fight the wolf and Bailey's bright slayer against Surt. There shall fall Frigg's delight, which is Odin. Odin's son goes to fight the wolf, Vidar on his way against the slaughterous beast. With his hand he lets his blade pierce Hvedrun's son's heart, so his father is avenged. Goes the great son of Hlodion, dying, to the serpent, who shrinks from no shame. All heroes shall leave the world when Midgard's protector strikes in wrath. The sun will go dark, earth sinks into the sea, from heaven vanish the bright stars. Steam surges and life's warmer, another kenning for fire, life's warmer, high flame flickers, 
against the very sky. And Snorri says, it also says in the Voluspa, there is a field called Vigrid, where shall meet in battle Surt and the sweet gods. A hundred leagues each way it is, this field is marked out for them. And then, as you remember, the uh, the Gilfaginning, the part of the uh, prose edda that I'm reading from, is a frame story. It's a conversation between Gangleri, who is asking Odin, basically, questions about what's going to happen. And at this point, uh, Gangleri says, What will happen, then, after heaven and earth, and all the world is burned, and all the gods and all the Einherar, and all of mankind are dead. What will happen? You said previously that everyone shall live in some world or other forever and ever. And then said uh, the third, there will the, the three people who are telling Gangleri these, these answers. Uh, there will then be many mansions that are good and many that are bad. The best place to be in heaven then will be Gimli, and there will be plenty of good drink for those that take pleasure in it in the hall of Brimir. That is also in heaven, that is also a good hall, which is situated at Nidfial, built of red gold. It is called Sindri. In these halls shall dwell good and virtuous people. On Nestrons is a large and unpleasant hall, and its doors face north. It is woven out of snakes' bodies, like a wattled house. And the snakes' heads all face inside the house, and spit poison so that rivers of poison flow along the hall. Wading those rivers are oath-breakers and murderers, as it says here. I know a hall that stands far from the sun at Nostrand. North face the doors. Poison drops flow in through the smoke hole. This hall is woven from snakes' backs. There shall wade heavy streams, men who are perjured and murderers. But it is worst in Hevergelmir, there Nidahog torments the bodies of the dead. A good uh, excuse to throw in a bunch of information about halls and mansions. And then Gangleri asks this, will there be any gods alive at this time? And will there be any kind of earth, any kind of sky? And Odin says this, the earth will shoot up out of the sea and will then be green and fair. Crops will grow unsown. Vidar and Veli will be alive, the sea and Surt's fire not having harmed them, and they will dwell in Itaval, where Asgard had been previously. And then Thor's sons Modi and Magni will arrive and bring Mjolnir. And after that, Balder and Hod, the two brothers, the one who killed the other and was killed in turn, uh, who was avenged, uh, Balder and Hod will arrive from hell. Then they will all sit down together and talk and discuss their mysteries and speak of the things that happened in former times of the Midgard serpent Fenris wolf, Midgard serpent and Fenris wolf. And it seems to be in stories like these that the people who live by blood feud people who believe in these gods, who are so brutal and who also live by blood feud, they seem to realize that it is a system that uh, cannot be sustained 
but at the same time they realize that they don't have a better option and so they just keep doing it and they seem to realize that the ideal would be that Balder and Hod would you know sort of emerge from the wreckage of this world walking hand in hand uh, discussing the mysteries and speaking of the things that happened at former times and that they would be reconciled and that there would be peace they seem to realize that that would be the ideal thing, but that uh, but that it can only happen after everything else has been destroyed. Maybe that is some sort of metaphor uh, for just how hard uh, true reconciliation, true healing might be. Maybe it's so hard that uh, it is actually impossible except in these extreme circumstances of the end of the world. But in any case, I'll read that sentence again so we can finish this. Uh, then they will all... Here, here, read start this sentence over. After that, Balder and Hod will arrive from hell. Then they will all sit down together and talk and discuss their mysteries and speak of the things that had happened in former times, of the Midgar serpent and Fenris wolf, and then they will find in the grass the golden playing pieces that had belonged to the Aesir, these little chess pieces. Thus it is said in the, in the Voluspa, Vidar and Veli will dwell in the gods' holy places when Surt's flame goes dark. Modi and Magni shall have Mjolnir when Vignir fights no more. And in a place called Hodmimir's Holt, two people will lie hid during Surt's fire called Life of Lefthrasir, and their food will be the dews of morning. How about that? Their food will be the dews of morning. Uh, morning as in uh, the earliest part of the day, not weeping, the dews of morning. And from these people there will be descended such a great progeny that all the world will be inhabited, as it says here, Life in the Lefthrasir, and they shall lie hid in Hodmir's Holt, Dews of morning they shall have as their food, and from them shall grow mankind. From them shall grow mankind again. And this also will seem amazing to you, that the son will have begotten a daughter no less fair than she is, and she shall follow the paths of her mother. As it says here, a daughter shall, shall Alfrodul bear before Fenrir catches her, before Fenrir swallows the sun. The son will have a daughter, and she shall ride when the powers die, the maiden, her mother's road. And now, if you know any more questions to ask further into the future, I do not know where you will find the answers, for I have heard no one relate the history of the world any further on in time than this, and may the knowledge you have gained do you good. And that is the story of Ragnarok as told in the prose edda of Snorri Sturluson from around the year 1220. And as we know, one way to sort of uh, go in peace and study this some more is to hear that story again told in a different way. So take a little break here and we will catch up with the poetic edda, with the Voluspa in just a moment.
So let's see how the Norse tell that same story, except this time in poetry. So where we start is back with the story of Balder, Balder's dreams and Balder's death. And what we have is a poem that's actually written, and I didn't know this until I was preparing for this. I've read this poem many times, but I had no idea that the poem known as Balder's dreams was actually written about 1300. And so it's later than the Voluspa, and it's about a century later than the uh, prose edda of Snorri Sturluson. And uh, according to the commentaries that I saw, it seems to have been written uh, in a response or just a desire to fill the story out a bit more, or in this case, to change the story a tiny bit. If we remember the prose edda version, uh, Balder dies and one of Odin's sons goes down to the underworld to request that he just come on back up. Uh, can he please not have died? Uh, in Baldur's dream, uh, it is Odin himself who goes down, and he goes down to hell, and he raises the uh, reluctant spirit of a Cirrus. You would imagine it might be the same kind of Cirrus who is performing or who would have written something like the Voluspa to ask for his son, but also to wonder a bit what the consequences of all of this will be. And the commentaries make the great point that what this is, what the form of Baldur's dream is, is the same as the Gilfaginning that I've been reading from, which takes the form of a wisdom dialogue of people who are in disguise, who are disguising themselves and asking questions of people in power or people with sort of arcane knowledge. And that is what is happening here. Uh, it isn't until the end that Odin reveals himself or that the, uh, the seeress realizes who she is talking to. And if you look at the other poems in the Poetic Edda and in other stories, I'm sure, uh, throughout the corpus, you might say, of Norse mythology and the sagas, you'll find dialogues that are carried on uh, in this way, where one party is disguised or where it is some sort of a wisdom competition, almost who knows what, who knows more, and so on and so forth. So let's get to Baldur's dream to start with. As I mentioned in the last episode on the Norse myths, the edition, the translation of the poetic edda that I'm reading from is translated by Andy Orchard for the Penguin Classics in a book called The Elder Edda, a book of Viking lore. And this is his translation of Baldur's Dreams. All at once the gods were gathered, and all the goddesses came to speak. The mighty deities had a discussion why Baldur's dreams were foreboding. Odin rose up, the ancient sacrifice, and on to Sleipnir placed a saddle. He rode down from there to Niflhel, and met a whelp that came from hell. It was bloody on the front of its chest, and barked for long at the father of spells. Odin rode on. The highway resounded. He came up to the high hall of hell. 
Then Odin rode east of the door, where he knew the seeress was buried. The cunning one began to recite a corpse spell, until she rose, reluctant, and spoke the words of the dead. What man is that unknown to me, she says. What man is that unknown to me? Who has made me take a troublesome trip? I have been covered with snow, battered with rain, drenched with dew. I have been long dead. Way tamer, this is Odin speaking, way tamer I am called, slain tamer's son. Tell me tidings from hell, I know about the world. For whom are the benches strewn with rings, the platform fairly flooded with gold, he can see one of the halls, is all decked out, he's saying. Who is this all decked out for? Here stands mead brewed for Balder, she says, the shining liquor, a shield hanging above, and the Aesir folk are in despair. Reluctant, I told you, now I will be still, she's saying. You asked, I had to tell you the truth, this feast is being made for your son who is going to die. And I forgot, of course, uh, the big difference here is that Baldur's dreams, uh, Odin's uh, journey, takes place before Baldur dies. Well, in the prose edda, that version, the journey to hell takes place after Baldur dies. Uh, Odin wants her to keep speaking, though. He says, don't shut up, Cirrus. I want to question you until all is known, and I still wish to know who will turn out to be Baldur's killer and snatch the life from Odin's son. And she says, Hod will send off the lofty glory tree. He will turn out to be Baldur's killer and snatch the life from Odin's son. Reluctant, I told you, now I will be still. And he says again, don't be still, Cirrus. I wish to question you until all is known. And still I wish to know who will bring vengeance on Hod for his wickedness and put Baldur's killer to the funeral pyre. And she says, Rind will bear Vaili in the western halls. That son of Odin will kill one night old. He won't wash his hands or comb his head till he puts to the pyre Baldur's opponent. Reluctant, I told you, now I'll be still. And that is the story of the, the last son of Odin, who is born after the death of Baldur, and seems to be born entirely for the purpose of avenging his death. As it says, he doesn't have time to even have a childhood, or even comb his hair or wash his hands. Um, he just gets right to the business of killing. And that might say something about... Uh, about the society that this poem is entertainment for. Uh, Don't be still, Cirrus. I wish to question you until all is known, Odin says again. And I still wish to know, who are those maidens who weep as they will and fling their cloth flaps to the sky? And the Cirrus finally says, You are not way tamer as I suspected. Rather are you Odin, the ancient sacrifice. And he says, you are not a seeress or a wise woman. Rather, you are the mother of three ogres. I guess uh, that's quite an insult to say. Uh, the commentaries don't uh, quite understand why it is that this thing that Odin says, who are the maidens who weep as they will, 
and fling their cloth flaps up to the sky. They're not sure what uh, what the reason is, what the details are in this. This is almost like the, the riddle of Oedipus. Um, they don't quite understand why this is the thing. This is the clue that gives away his identity as being Odin, but it does. And uh, so she realizes who he is, and he says, you are not a seeress or a wise woman. Rather, you are the mother of three ogres. So next time you're in an argument with someone, uh, try to use that line. And she says to him, Ride home, Odin, and be proud. May no one else come back to visit me till Loki slips loose from his bonds and there comes the power's fate, destructive. And for whatever reason or another, that filled a need uh, in telling the story of having Odin go down to hell to do all of that. And I wanted to read, before we get to the end of the Voluspa, I wanted to read what Ursula Dronke has to say about Baldur's dream. This is, let me find it here. As I mentioned, the, the best edition of all of this stuff, at least of the uh, Voluspa, comes from the Poetic Edda, Volume 2, Mythological Poems, translated by Ursula Dronke, and I'll put a link to this in the post description, published in 1997. It's very hard to get, or it's very expensive to get brand new copies of this, but uh, you should be able to get it through interlibrary loan. That's what I was able to do. This is what Ursula Dronke has to say about, uh, about Baldur. She says, um, and, and because one of the things that she's taken up with in the Voluspa and elsewhere is just how much of this is, uh, how much of the story of Baldur, of the death of a young man uh, that brings on the end of the world and all of this, how much of it is influenced by uh, Christianity. If you think that the Voluspa was uh, composed or written around the year 1000, perhaps by people who still considered themselves to be heathen or pagan in some way. And if you think that the Prose Edda, which dates to 1220, was uh, written by Snorri Sturluson, who was himself, I believe, a Christian, and was written for a society who was in the majority Christian, and was written more of a look back at what we used to believe, or at the stories we used to tell, uh, you have to wonder how much, uh, in both cases, there would be echoes of Christianity there. This is what Ursula Dronke says. If the extant Norse traditions of Baldur are so greatly influenced by traditions of Christ, could it be that the Norse, the Norse legend of Baldur uh, was, in fact, a holy Christian invention? And she says, I would think this is improbable because too many pre-Christian foundations are visible in the story itself. The sacrificial killing of the king at the will of the god, the cyclic fratricide of the consort of the goddess, establishing the ancient role of the Broth Urbani, the reincarnation or return to life of the killed one, and the weeping for the lost lord. We have no extant Norse analog for Hermother's ride to hell to release a captive of death, because they usually say that uh, 
this could be an echo of the Christian idea of the harrowing of hell when after the crucifixion uh, Christ goes down to hell to uh, release the people who should now be able to go into uh, paradise. Uh, she says, if Freya in her search for Other had reached the gates of hell, she probably would have received the same answer to her quest as Aphrodite did, that hell was holding her lover captive until the spring. Remember the story of um, his wife. Uh, that Balder stays in hell until the resurgence of the earth is part of the heathen pattern, not the Christian one. That the Norse legend of Balder was intended to be a heathen legend and understood as such is perhaps confirmed by its use in the legend by a Christian poet in Beowulf. Now, if you have your copies of Beowulf uh, lying around, go to lines 2430 to 2440, and there you will see a story that sounds uh, much like um, much like the death of Balder, except it's, uh, the story is recast and reused, um, so that it was, least, it was at least extant, you might say, at the time uh, that Beowulf was written a century or so uh, before even the uh, Voluspa. She goes on to say, readers of the Voluspa will wish to make their own assessments of the character of the poem and its genesis. I present materials towards this assessment, some of it new in the context, but there is certainly more to be found. I do not think, from the, from the close of the poem, with its confident return of a multiplicity of deities, that the poet was himself a Christian, but that he admired the Christian religion well enough to idealize the world after Ragnarok in near-Christian terms and that he enjoyed the sophisticated paths of Christian theology as much as his Irish friends did, and the breadth of a Christian Sibylline vision, that is, the Christian or classical equivalent of the prophetess or the seeress who is performing the uh, Voluspa. At the same time that he built his theme by allusions to purely heathen material, the gods' disastrous game, the Aesir-Vanir war, the giant builder, Honir the priest, the, quote, bird of dawning, in this way, in a way that only, he does it in a way that only a Norse audience, learned in heathen lore, could savor, and probably that only a Norse court of heathen-born skalds could provide. His range of volure figures suggests a variety of lively social as well as poetic tradition behind their depiction of the, uh, of the seeress herself. Different kinds of seeresses, different layers of different uh, characters of seeresses are seen in the Voluspa. Um, his range of these figures suggests a variety of lively social as well as poetic tradition behind their depiction which the literary oracular sibyls cannot match. As most readers of the Voluspa have felt, the poet must have lived through the last decades of the 10th century and probably into the 11th, familiar with the heathen and the Christian courts, but with the freedom of an Icelander subject to none of them. So that's nice. You, you're imagining someone living around the year 1000 where there are both Christian and heathen courts and this 
this poet, whoever it is who wrote the Voluspa, is able to go between them. Um, that's sort of like the story I've been telling for a while now, the little anecdote I heard about uh, the renown that poets were held in medieval Ireland, where you have the five, I think, provinces of Ireland, and the borders are very closely watched. You're not allowed to just go from one province to another, uh, just willy-nilly, as it were. But poets, poets were one of the only class of people who could, willy-nilly, whenever they wanted, go from province to province. And it's nice to imagine the, the uh, poet of the Voluspa being able to do the same thing. Now we will read the, um, the account of Ragnarok in the, Voluspa, in the Voluspa itself. We'll read stanzas 31 to 66. And along the way, we will uh, look at Ursula Dronke's uh, commentary on it again. And here we are. We remember that uh, Balder shows up and he is killed by a sprig of mistletoe that is attached to um, is attached to a staff, turned into a dart, a very strange weapon to use. This is what the Voluspa says. Uh, I saw for Balder, the blood-stained god, Odin's son, his fate fully settled. There stood blooming above the ground, meager, mighty, beautiful, mistletoe. From that plant that seemed so slender, Hode learned to shoot a dangerous dart of harm. Baldur's brother was quickly born, and that son of Odin learned to kill one night old. He never washed his hands nor combed his head till he put to the pyre Baldur's foe. But Frigg lamented in the fen halls, for slain halls woe, do you know yet or what? And that's three stanzas right there that took about ten minutes to read in the prose version. The entire story of uh, Baldur's death is compressed. And if you hadn't read the prose version, you wouldn't quite know what all of that meant. Uh, it mentions the mistletoe. It mentions uh, the brother who does the killing. And then it mentions the new brother, the new son of Odin, who does the avenging. And that is it. That is one way to do it in poetry. And Ursula Dronke has this to say about this stanza, these three stanzas. Let me find it here. She says this. Um, there is still one more element of significance in stanza 31. That's the one that mentions um, the, the mistletoe that I just read. The vulva speaks of Balder as a tivor, a sacrifice, and the manner of his death, as it is described in stanza 32, uh, is indeed recorded elsewhere as a sacrifice to Odin, to Odin, with the same ironic reversal of expectations the same transformation of a slender plant into the relentless spear of the god. By the word tivor, the poet here touches upon the religious base of the richly elaborated legend of Baldur. Men sacrifice in winter for the renewal of the year and of its growth. Now at that same season, when the mistletoe is at its most glorious, Baldur himself will be sacrificed for the renewal of the world after Ragnarok. That's an interesting idea. 
He doesn't bring about Ragnarok. His death doesn't bring about the crisis that brings about Ragnarok. Uh, what he does is allow for the renewal afterwards. Uh, when the new world comes, he will return to it in stanza 59. Though killed by an Odinic spear, like the Vanir in their ceaseless wars, he will come back to life as they, just as they did. The Volva's vision, the Sirius's vision, shows Odin what must be done. It's that heavy inevitability again, that doom-laden sense that's above all of these stories. And she says, uh, After the apparition of the sacrificed god and the radiant mistletoe, a subdued declaration of the killing of the revenge is made. We revert to the Volva's narrative, relating, without enigma, though the facts are fabulous, how the thin twig became a murdering javelin when Hothers or, or Hoders started shooting, a blind marksman, least likely of killers, and how a new son of Odin, specially begotten, and grown to manhood in a single night, started slaying. He starts killing right away. His body he dedicated to vengeance, and she says he neither washed hands nor combed his head until he could carry Hood's corpse to the funeral pyre. Up to now, in the poem, there have been many styles reflecting the variety of the material on which the poet has drawn. And this is nice how she sums this up. There is the realistic narrative. There is a fairy tale narrative. There is what she calls mystic surrealism, which is nice. But only here, in The Vengeance for Balder, is there symbolic mummery. With lightning speed, a new son of Odin replaces the old, and immediately on his birth, invests himself fanatically with vows, just like a grown-up Viking. So this is either the nightmare of a Viking father, or uh, a proud moment uh, to imagine for a Viking father. What is that phrase again? That's wonderful. Uh, invests himself fanatically with vows, like a grown-up Viking. All right. So let's get back to the Voluspa here. Um, do you know yet or what? Then Vali's war bands were woven. These are uh, Loki's sons. Um, when Loki is uh, uh, bound in the cave and the, the venom is dripping on him and he's made to watch his sons uh, devour each other. Then Vali's war bands were woven rather hard with the bonds out of his own guts. She saw a prisoner prostrate under Kettle Grove in the likeness of Loki, ever eager for harm. There sits Sigyn over her husband, but she feels little glee. Do you know yet or what? A river flows from the east through venom valleys with knives and swords. Stern is its name. There stood to the north on moon-wane plains a hall of gold of Sindri's line. A second stood, a second hall, on never-cooled, the beer hall of a giant, the one called Brimir. A hall she saw, standing far from the sun, on dead body strands. Its doors faced north. Venom drops flowed in through the roof holes. That hall is plated from serpents' spines. She saw there, wading through heavy currents, men false sworn and murderous men, and those who gall another's faithfulest girl. 
There, Spite Striker sucks the bodies of the dead, a wolf torment. Do you know yet, or what? And Ursula Dronke has wonderful things to say about these halls, the vision of these halls that is seen near the end of the world. And let me find that page for us. We remember from our Beowulf how important these halls are. And this is just a little paragraph that Ursula Dronke mentions. Um, and you imagine the halls being the place where the where the uh, where the Voluspa is performing her her um, her prophecy as well. She says uh, Ursula Dronke says the variety of halls in the other worlds of the Voluspa is difficult to parallel in other vision literature, where the jeweled walls of heaven or the torments of hell are enough, such as House of Evil, fast beneath the earth, where fire where the fire and serpent are open to the eternal cave of every evil. And she says, Are the many halls a characteristic of a popular shamanic genre in the Norse? When Odin begins his vision in another poem called Grimna's Wall, uh, it is the Salir and the Selkini of the gods that he sees. It is the, the halls. This focus upon halls, these great meeting places, this focus upon halls most probably reflects the central role of the grander farms in thinly populated countrysides, as in Norway, Iceland, Ireland, where every traveler hopes to find just such a place, hopes to find just such a shelter um, in such an otherwise desolate place. And a, a shaman, a seeress, or just a healer, you might think, would no doubt build upon familiar images to set in relief the significant differences of his vision world. And I was just reading the, uh, the Orkney saga, uh, the saga of the Viking uh, earls of Orkney. And there's a nice passage in there too about um, someone going from farm to farm, uh, a healer or a, uh, a prophet, or someone who's just good at doing magic tricks to entertain the children. Uh, someone who goes, and this was just the, the kind of type of person you would see wandering around, they would be able to go from farm to farm, and uh, I, I think the, the aside was, or the joke was, is that uh, the person always knew just when to arrive, just to, to arrive just around dinner time, so they could have part of the feast, and they would uh, do their shtick, and... Uh, maybe get payment or whatever it is, maybe stay the night and then move on. So that seems to be, and that's another thing, he would find the farmstead or he would find the hall, the place to go where there are people, where there's food, where there's warmth, and where there might be uh, a bit of generosity, a bit of money, or if you imagine them as being genuine performers too, uh, just a willing audience uh, ready to listen and have a good time. That's a nice thing to think of as well. So we leave the halls. Do you know yet or what? And this is where we get to uh, start getting into the the true prophecy or what is happening at the end of the world. In the east sat an old crone in iron wood and suckled there the seed of Fenrir. 
From them all shall emerge a certain one, a grabber of the moon in monstrous guise. He is filled with the lifeblood of doomed men. He reddens the power's dwellings with ruddy gore. The sunbeams turn black the following summer. All weather woeful, do you know yet or what? There sat on a grave mound and plucked at a harp, the giantess's herdsman, happy Agathair. Over him there crowed in gallows wood a bright red cock whose name is much wise. Over the Aesir there crowed golden comb, who wakes the warriors at host father's home. Another crows beneath the earth, a soot-red cock in the halls of hell. Garm howls loud before looming cave. The bond will break, and the ravenous one run. Much lore she knows, I see further ahead, of the power's fate implacable of the victory gods. Brothers will struggle and slaughter each other, and sister sons spoil kinship's bonds. It's hard on earth, great whoredom, axe age, blade age, shields are split, wind age, wolf age, before the world crumbles. No one shall spare another. That's an incredible stanza there. Uh, Memes sons sport. The wood of destiny, which is Yggdrasil. Memes sons sport. The wood of destiny is kindled at the ancient sounding horn. Heimdall blows loud. The horn is aloft. And Odin speaks with Mim's head. That's one of my favorite images in all of this. It might be my favorite image of Odin finding the embalmed head of this prophet and speaking to it and getting information from it. Uh, the standing ash of Yggdrasil shudders. The aged tree groans and the giant breaks free. All are afraid on the paths of hell before Surt's kin swallows it up. What's with the Aesir? Sounds like a, a Seinfeld joke. What is it with the Aesir? Uh, <laughs> what's with the Aesir? What's with the elves? All giants' domain groans, and the Aesir holds counsel. The dwarves murmur before their stone doors. Lords of the cliff wall, do you know yet or what? Garm now howls loud before looming cave. The bond will break, and the ravenous one run. Much lore she knows, I see further ahead, of the power's fate implacable of the victory gods. Hrim drives from the east, holds his shield ahead. Great wand writhes in giant wrath. The serpent strikes waves, the eagle screams. Pale beaked rips bodies, and nail boat breaks free. Remember the, the long aside about the boat made from people's cut nails. All it says here is nail boat breaks free. Uh, a vessel journeys from the east. Muspel's troops will come over the waters, while Loki steers. All the monstrous offspring accompany the ravenous one. The brothers of Byleist is with them on the trip. Surt comes from the south with what damages branches, which is, as I said, that is a kenning for fire. What damages branches? There shines from his sword the son of corpse gods. Rock cliffs clash, troll wives crash, warriors tread hell roads, and heaven is rent. Then there comes Forthlin, which is uh, Frigg, uh, Odin's 
uh, Odin's wife. Then there comes forth Lean a second sorrow, when Odin goes to fight against the wolf, and Bailey's bright bane against Surt. Then's when Frigg's beloved must fall. And before we go on with that, I just wanted to read Ursula Dronke's comment on that very briefly, and then I'll, I'll read that stanza again. This is when the fighting begins. But uh, she says this. Um, when the fighting begins in Odin's wife and her sorrows, uh, it says, against this sensational scenery, the action of the battle itself is epitomized simply in four single combats, which are told almost like elegies, she says. The striding out of Odin against the wolf and a frayer against Surt are two brief instances of action set in the frame of the long sorrow of Frigg. Odin's death is her second sorrow, because of course the first one is when she wept for her son Balder. And now the last joy left to her will go when Odin falls. The, this overwhelming event is her sorrow, not his death, as the poet tells it. The overwhelming event is her sorrow, not Odin's death. Nowhere else in the extant sources is the relationship of Odin and Frigg accorded such tenderness, and nowhere else is grief for Odin made equal with grief for Balder. So let's read on to the end of Voluspa, and then I'll have time for one more comment here. Uh, then there comes forth Lean a second sorrow, when Odin goes to fight the wolf, and Bailey's bright bane against Surt, then's when Frigg's beloved must fall. Then there comes the great son of victory, father, the Vidar, to fight against the slaughtering beast. With his hand he sends his sword to the heart of Hvedrung's son, then his father is avenged. The earth's girdle gapes over heaven, the dread serpent's jaws yawn on high. Odin's son must meet the serpent when the wolf is dead and Vidar's kin. Then there comes the famous offspring of Flodin. Odin's son goes to fight the serpent. The defender of Middle-earth strikes in his wrath. All warriors must abandon their homesteads. He goes nine paces, the son of Fjorgen, spent from the snake that fears no spite. The sun turns black, the land sinks into sea, the bright stars scatter from the sky, flame flickers up against the world tree, fire flies high against heaven itself. Garm now howls loud before looming cave, the bond will break and the ravenous one run. Much lore she knows I see further ahead of the power's fate implacable of the victory gods. She sees rising up a second time the earth from the ocean, evergreen, the cataracts tumble, an eagle flies above, hunting fish along the fell. The Aesir come together on action field and pass judgment on the powerful earth coil and commemorate there the mighty events and the ancient runes of the potent god, the potent god being Odin. Afterwards there will be found wondrous gold-gaming pieces in the grass, those which in ancient days they had owned. All unsown the fields will grow, all harm will be healed, Balder will come, 
Hood and Balder will inhabit Hrop's victory halls, sanctuaries of the slain gods. Do you know yet, or what? Then Honer shall choose the wooden lots, and the sons of the two brothers will build dwellings in the wide wind home. Do you know yet, or what? She sees a hall standing more beautiful than the sun, better than gold at Gimle. Virtuous folk shall live there, and enjoy pleasures the live long day. Then there comes the mighty one down from above, the strong one who governs everything to powerfulness. Then there comes there the dark dragon flying, the glittering snake up from moon-wane hills. It bears in its wings and flies over the plain, dead bodies, spite striker. Now she must sink. And that is the end of the Voluspa, composed around the year 1000. And you can see what a great difference it is from what I read earlier from the prose Edda. You almost imagine that the prose Edda should have been written first with all of the detail, and that only then, after everyone had uh, apparently uh, been familiar with the, the material in the prose version, only then could a poet come along and shrink it all down and, and make it this intense thing. But it's actually the other way around. It seems that, uh, I'm just guessing here, but it seems that the, the Voluspa was written at the end of a process of where, where all of these little stories were known and were told about these gods, about their lives at the beginning of the world, the Aesir Vanir War, uh, and then Ragnarok, all the battles, all the fights, all the animosities. And finally, uh, the overturning of the world and the returning of it again. It almost seems as if there were, everybody knew about this stuff already, and that the poem was written at just the right time that something like this could be presented to an audience, could be performed in front of them, almost like a, a shorthand play. You imagine a five-minute version, uh, perhaps, of Hamlet, where you get the whole thing in five minutes and not four hours. And you, and you also, so you catch the audience at their moment of peak knowledge and awareness of reference. These stories are living inside them already. And you get a poet who is able to compress it all in the way that it has been done. And out comes this Voluspa, which is about 10 pages in print, but about a thousand pages with all of it filled out and filled in and examined. It's a wonderful thing, wonderfully moving thing. Now, I have one more comment to read from Rudolf Simek in his Dictionary of Northern Mythology. And this will take us into the next stage of Norse myth, whenever I get to it over the next month or so. And I think what we'll do is just do episodes about the different gods. And almost certainly we'll start uh, with Odin, unless plans change. But this is a nice uh, remark from Rudolf Simek that I will leave you with about the Voluspa. And let's see, and I will leave you with this. So thank you, as always, for listening. This is what Rudolf Simek has to say. 
there have been attempts to see not only Christian, but also Indian, Iranian, Indo-European, and other parallels, as well as Persian and Manichaean parallels, all in the Voluspa. And even though there have been attempts to distinguish clearly between Germanic and Christian traits within the song, within the poem, this cannot lead to any final clarification of the sources of the Voluspa. One scholar has suggested, on the other hand, that the song, the poem, whose poet reworked predominantly narrative material, should be seen as its own kind of unity, even though Christian influences are most likely present. Nonetheless, that this still means that neither the wealth of material nor the means of recording it have been clarified. We don't know. We don't know who wrote it, how they wrote it, or what their sources were, for sure. What we know is that it was one, what our guess is, is that it was one powerful and very good poet who was able to do it. The bringing together of these concepts of varying origin in a lasting form is the work of a single author, even if his work is perhaps not even representative of the late heathen period, but rather reflects his own personal confession in artistic form. These limitations, and we can say this about just about anything, these limitations, if you want to call them limitations, should not be forgotten in using the Voluspa as a source for Germanic mythology. So that is a nice note to end on as well. This may not even be uh, uh, the expression of, a, of an entire culture's theology or outlook. It may have been just the extremely powerful expression of one person who saw it and was able to put it into words and to, uh, to redefine what people thought and believed and were moved by, just by his words. And there we are, and there I will leave it. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.